you got your Bible, if you've got a phone with a Bible on it, let's open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy in the New Testament chapter 4. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And, and watch this. This is the Apostle Paul writing under inspiration, so he's writing scripture, to a pastor. His name is Timothy. And he's the pastor of a church called Ephesus Bible Fellowship. Or at least it was the church in Ephesus. And so he says this to this pastor, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, proclaim the word, be ready in season and out of season when it draws a crowd, when it doesn't draw a crowd. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now, why would an apostle have to tell a pastor to do that? Because there's always a temptation not to do that. To kind of dumb it down and simplify it and maybe preach the Reader's Digest or something. Because the Bible's kind of controversial. Because, you do that, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And we're living in that time right now. Uh, but wanting their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And we're always looking for somebody to tell us what we want to hear instead of what we need to hear. And will turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to miss. Now go back one chapter, chapter 3 in 2 Timothy, verse 14. And again, this is Paul, an apostle, writing New Testament scripture to a pastor, and it applies to all pastors and really indirectly to all believers. Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing with whom you have learned them. And in the first chapter of the book, Paul talks about Timothy's childhood. He had a godly mother and a godly grandmother. Not everybody has that blessing, but this guy did. So Paul says about Timothy, the pastor, uh, from your childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And that's what you want to focus on, because all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the believer, male or female, high school student or senior citizen, that the believer in Jesus Christ, the born-again person, doesn't matter what color, culture, country, generation, denomination. This applies to millennials. This applies to Generation Xers. This applies to uh, uh, baby boomers, all the generations. That believers might be mature, equipped for every good work. Let me start with a question. What do you think about when you think about God? What comes to your mind when you think about God? Um, if you picture God as an elderly guy with a long ro white robe on who kind of stands at a railing in heaven... It kind of peers down through some spectacles and watches you all day long. And when you do something right, he kind of nods his head. And when you do something naughty, he kind of waves his finger. But that's kind of all he does. Uh, then I'm glad you're here today because you need to hear a different version of that. Now, the psychologists tell us that we tend to think about God the way we picture our Father. I think that's just kind of a default position. If you had a very godly, gracious, wise father, and so Zach, you're, you're in a good position there, okay? You can see a lot of overlap and that, a lot of analogies between a godly father and our heavenly father. It's always going to break down. It's not perfect. But some people have fathers that were abusive verbally. The kid could never do anything right. I talked to somebody today, just this morning, whose father could never find anything good about him. It could be a her. And that can warp the way you think about God the Father. So, you know, we're told that we're supposed to let Scripture program the way we think about reality 
starting with God and not just our experience. So if you had a difficult childhood with a father who is difficult and who was doing things that are clearly out of bounds biblically, you're going to have to kind of punt away that default assumption. That's the way God is because that's not the way God is. We're going to start a new mini-series today. What TBFers need to know about several important topics, and we're going to start with the ultimate topic, what we need to know about God. Now, I think a fair question is, who does Brad McCoy think he is to teach us about God? Like Brad's going to define and describe God for us? Uh, no, I, I have no direct authority on this topic. The only authority I have to teach is delegated authority through God's general revelation, just like a painter can reveal a lot about herself through a great painting. You look around at the physical universe, you see a lot of cool things about God. He's really big, he's really smart, he's really creative. That's, that's general revelation. But we also know more specific things through what's called special revelation. Two basic categories. The written word of God, the living word of God. The living word of God is Jesus Christ. My premise this morning is God exists and God reveals, and he's revealed himself a lot of ways, and I'm going to try to reduce some of that down for us today. But the ultimate superlative revelation of who God is is found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the bottom line. That's where we're going to go today. So uh, let's pray we'll be teachable to God's word as we think about God. Let's, let's pray he'll expand our categories, our ability to appreciate and respect and respond to him as he really is. And as we do that, as we pray for that kind of teachability, let's pray for those who protect and serve us in various areas like that. And Lloyd uh, Davis, lead us in prayer in that direction, would you? Yeah, we're starting a new mini-series now. Lord willing, the first week in April, weather permitting, of course, we will start a study of the life of Joseph, the coat of many colors guy. But today we're going to talk about what TBFers need to know about God. Next week we're going to talk about Islam and, and go through that list of, th- of things, kind of standalone individual messages. But first, let's warm up our capacity for abstract thought. I've got three abstract thought warmer-uppers that came from Al Gore's most famous invention, the Internet. He said he invented the Internet. I think he invented global warming, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> Young kids talking to his mother or father, whatever that is. Uh, some religions don't eat meat on Friday because there's separation of church and steak. It's actually it's actually church and state, but he thought it was church and state. Not laugh out loud funny, just kind of warm warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. Uh, the doctor says to the patient, "Please don't pray for healing. If it works, your insurance won't know how who to reimburse, and it messes up our accounting system." So, you know, miracles happen, but they're kind of rare, and they kind of mess up human calculations sometimes. And finally, uh, you probably heard the serenity prayer, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change without a remote control. <laughs> this guy watching a television set, right? Now, we're going to think about who and what God is today, and we're going to say ultimately God reveals himself in a lot of ways, but the superlative revelation of who God is is found in the second person, the incarnation of the second person, the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So this kind of lines up with what, you know, TBF is not Methodist, it's not uh, Baptist, it's not Church of the Nazarene, it's not an Arminian church, it's not a Calvinistic church, it's not an Amaraldian church, it's not just a premillennial church, it's, it's a group of believers from a lot of different denominational backgrounds united on the big things, and we kind of uh, hammer out our own convictions on some of the f- secondary deals. 
But that's the treasure trove of truth that the Holy Spirit has confirmed for his church of all colors, countries, and cultures, who God is generally, who Christ is specifically, who we are, we're guilty with an inability to save ourselves, what Christ has done. He died to pay for our sins and rose again, so he's the guy you look to for eternal life. What we must do, salvation by grace, unmerited favor, through faith in Christ alone. What Christ will do, he's going to end history with a literal second advent and what the Bible is. It's inspired, it's infallible, it's indispensable. So we're kind of focusing on the first one of those today with a little bit of the second one, who God is generally, who Christ is specifically. So let's start here. Now you might think we're going to spend the next 43 minutes talking about God. And you might think, well then why is your first slide affirming that you can't understand God? I think that's where you have to start. You approach this subject with great fear and tribulation because uh, the fact is finite beings cannot fully understand an infinite, the infinite being. It just won't happen. He's going to blow some of your categories. And uh, I've been studying pretty seriously for a long time, and I get my category blown every week. Now, just because we can't understand completely about God, he's not... We're not capable of our three-pound little computer in our head to wrap our brain around every facet of who he is. Just because we have partial knowledge doesn't mean we can't have correct knowledge. And the essence is don't oversimplify it so much you distort it, but don't water it down so you kind of deny it. Now, you notice in this kind of fancy slide I found, uh, we all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there's a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, uh, completely wise, just and good, and overflowing, the overflowing source of all good. Now, how in the world can you say he's simple? Well, that's a technical term meaning God is not one-thirteenth love and one-thirteenth sovereign and one-thirteenth righteous. I'm going to suggest there are 13 major essential qualities of God, attributes, characteristics, and he's not just a sum total of those things. God is 100% love. He's 100% sovereign. He doesn't get sick. He doesn't go half speed some days. He's 100% of all his perfections, and they always all work in harmony with one another, you know? And none of us are like that. We don't have all the, the gifts you could have as a human being, and the ones we do sometimes conflict with one another, <laughs> or we emphasize one to, uh, it becomes a weakness. But, uh, let's start here. This is my kind of, uh, is that blue or purple? Yeah. We're going to describe some of these attributes. In fact, we're going to touch on all of them briefly. But, yeah, so let's let's walk through it this way. Let's start with the first one. When we say God is true, what I mean by that is not that he's truthful. He is truthful, but that's veracity. That comes later. Sherry, when I say God is true, I'm saying he's real. He's really real. All the other gods are, 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 are idols. They're not real. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father Jesus Christ, he's the real God. In fact, he's a triune God. And, you know, some of you guys are in high school, some of you guys in college, and you're going to have some professors at some point say, you know, how many Christians are here in this room? Ah, you're a Christian, huh? Can God make a rock so big he himself can't lift it? Ha, ha, ha. And you're going, oh, they told me in Sunday school God can do anything, but I guess he can't make a rock so big he himself can't lift it. If they told you that in Sunday school, they told you wrong. God can't make a rock so big he himself can't lift it because... No matter how big it is, he could move it. It's a created thing. Plus, it'd be in space. It'd be weightless. You know, think about that. But uh, 
Can God make a square circle? There's no such thing as a square circle. When we say God can do anything, you really want to say God has no finite limit on his power, but there's a lot of things God can't do. He can't lie, he can't die, he can't stop being God, he can't make square circles, he's not going to make a rock so big he himself can't lift it, no matter how big it is he can make it. So you've got to kind of, kind of change your perspective here because some of the stuff you've heard in churches isn't right, and some of the stuff you're going to hear in classroom is very misleading. So we can, you know, uh, currently scientists say, give us one big miracle and we can explain everything else. And we'll tell you what the big miracle is in a minute. Uh, I'm going to call this the theological if statement. There are only four possibilities about God and about ultimate reality for anybody. This is for Richard Dawkins at Oxford University. This is for Franklin Graham, uh, Samaritan's Purse. If anything now exists, something or someone's got to be eternal. Or else... The source of everything in this universe popped in existence out of nothing and by nothing. You got four possibilities. That's all you get. Whether you're a uh, existential atheist or a King James only fundamentalist, you only get four logical possibilities. The universe is imaginary. If you believe that, I want you to put all your imaginary money on my imaginary desk as you leave the imaginary church today so I can put that in my imaginary wallet, drive home, and spend it. Uh, that's not going to fly. The universe is eternal. All the way through the 1960s, a lot of scientists wanted the steady state theory to be true, that hydrogen just kind of pops in existence out of nothing, and the universe has always been like that. Uh, but uh, Big Bang physics blew that out of the water, pun intended. Um, if anything now exists, something or someone must be eternal, or otherwise the universe popped in existence out of nothing and by nothing. The universe was caused by a transcendent agent outside of time and space. Okay? If anything now exists, something or someone must be eternal. To be eternal means you're outside of time and space. You're not limited by space or time, which means God is a spirit. Did anybody ever say God is a spirit? Who said God is a spirit? That'd be Jesus Christ in his incarnation after he took on humanity, but he continued to be God too, one person, two natures. Now, I can remember the first time I learned this if statement at Dallas Seminary, it's 30, 40 years ago, nobody was really saying out loud, the universe popped in existence out of nothing and by nothing. Now they're saying it, and I mean they're forced to because they, you know, God and the astronomers Robert Jastrow said, "Wow, the problem with Big Bang physics is it says there was a beginning to everything we can see, which means there must be a beginner outside of time." And he said, "I don't like that, but that's all we got." Oh no, you can have something else. Give me one big miracle. We can explain everything else. What's the big miracle? That the source of all matter, energy, time, and space. Popped in existence out of nothing, by nothing, for no reason, a finite about 14 billion years ago. That's all you got to believe. If, if you give us that miracle, which we cannot explain, we can try to explain everything else. That's why I like the title of this book. Uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. When your only option is the fourth one, if you want to be an atheist, and there's other reasons you shouldn't be an atheist, that's a hard one to, you got to have a lot of faith to believe that. Okay. Now, the world's most famous atheist right now, who's not an atheist, he's an agnostic, his name is Richard Dawkins. He teaches biology at Oxford University. And uh, his most famous book is called The God Delusion. So you medical students, you don't have time to read it, but you know, need to know that's kind of what put him on the map. And among other things, there are people, just at one level, there are people just as smart as Richard Dawkins who have just as much academic uh, equity as Richard Dawkins who believe in God, who believe in the God of the Bible with reason. And there was uh, one particular book, the Dawkins delusion, notice, 
In the God delusion, Richard Dawkins is saying believing in God is kind of a, a mental illness. It's a delusion. Uh, the uh, McGrath uh, wrote a book called The Dawkins Delusion, and uh, all of you who have taken communication with me say you're not supposed to, I always say don't ever use a visual aid in which you have to say, I know you can't see this, but, and I know you can't see this probably, but uh, Michael Roos, who is an atheist, read this book and said, The God Delusion, now that's not The God Delusion. Who wrote The God Delusion? Richard Dawkins. Michael Roos, who teaches at Florida State University, uh, history of science or history of biology and philosophy, something like that, professor of philosophy, he said, the God delusion makes me embarrassed to be an atheist. He's saying it's not a good argument. And the McGraths show you why. And then another of Michael Roos's quotes are, their treatment, the new atheists out there, including Richard Dawkins, don't just disagree with us. They think we ought to be banned. They think we're evil. The new atheist treatment of the, relig- of the religious viewpoint is pathetic. That's Michael Roos, who's an atheist, to the point of non-being. Richard Dawkins and the God Delusion would fail any introductory philosophy religion course. This guy teaches philosophy at Florida State. Proudly, he criticizes that whereof he knows nothing. So isn't that interesting? Now, just the idea that scientists are objective and theologians are subjective just isn't true. They're just as subjective as we are. <laughs> now, Biology, according to Richard Dawkins, now watch this. Does this prove anything? I've got a BS in biology, a THM in theology, a PhD in biblical studies, and so, uh, and I did two years at University of Texas Medical Branch uh, with my biology degree trying to become a dentist. But uh, when I took biology, right after the Earth's crust hardened, Murray, you know, they taught us the definition of biology, Tyler, we were told the definition of biology was the study of living things. And then it got, it got some more complicated after that. That's not the way Richard Dawkins defines it. Now, does this prove anything? We're saying God is true. He's real. That's what we're talking about. He defines biology this way. This is his definition. Biology is the study of complicated things which give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. That's his definition, Carol. Now, I, I object to that. And, many, and, and people read that, and some of you kids read that and think, well, that proves it. He's assuming what he's trying. Prove number one, that, which doesn't prove anything. But I'm thinking of like uh, I'm thinking of Mavis Birch or maybe Asher Franks or maybe uh, uh, Eloise McCoy. He's calling them complicated things, which is what he means. Because you don't have a soul, and you're just a collection of highly organized carbon atoms. And when you're dead, it's all over, and you have no ultimate significance. So little babies are just more complicated than rocks in this guy's worldview. This is dangerous. And he thinks we're the problem, okay? Uh, what he's saying is, I've dibl- deliberately chosen not to believe in God, therefore God does not exist. I don't believe in a creator, even though I tell you everything looks like it's been designed by a creator, therefore a creator does not exist. And I'm just going to say, next time I talk to Richard, I'm going to say, I don't believe in Richard Dawkins. I don't believe in Richard Dawkins, therefore Richard Dawkins does not exist. You can believe that if you want to, but it doesn't prove anything, right? And the big principle is this. Hydrogen, after it pops into existence out of nothing to buy nothing, for no reason, nowhere, is a colorless, odorless gas, which, if given enough time, turns into people. You know, (laughs) I find that hard to believe. I find that much harder to believe that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, okay? 
So with that in mind, atheism is the unproven, unprovable belief that there was absolutely nothing, and nothing happened to that nothing, such that for no reason nothing magically exploded, created everything, and then slowly, over a long period of time, parts of everything rearranged itself for no reason into incredibly complex self-replicating bits, which, after billions of years, slowly turned into Richard Dawkins. Now, <laughs> that's I find that hard to believe. You know, I mean, now you're not going to hear this case in your average uh, state university, but this is our case. It's a good case, and it also has the advantage of being true. You know, so this is a really good thing. Now, in fact, Richard Dawkins, the world's most famous atheist has come out of the closet, he's not an atheist, he's a real hard agnostic, which means he's not sure. He thinks God probably does not exist. Because somebody confronted him with something like this. If that oval represents everything that Riley Walls could possibly know about the universe, in fact, let's say everything human beings could possibly know about the universe, both at a micro and a macro level, everything. If that's everything anybody could know about the universe, you ask Richard Dawkins or anybody, how much do you know and control? Give me, give me, I'll give you a, a, a magic marker. You shade in, that's everything you could possibly know about the universe. How much do you know and control? If you ask a high school senior, they'll do that. <laughs> they know a lot. You know, the, the, Mark Twain said, when I was 16, I was embarrassed by how ignorant my parents were. When I turned 21, I was amazed at how much the old guys had learned in five years, you know. Now, if you talk to somebody who's graduated from college, not right after the graduate, give them about five years in the real world, who's this ficka that gets all my money every paycheck? I don't like this, you know. They'll, they'll be down to that. See, this is when you, a senior in high school, this is after you're out of college, real world. If you ask anybody else like Richard Dawkins, he's smart enough to say that. In fact, it's, it'd be a dot. Of all that you could possibly know, Julie, about the universe, how much you know in control, it's a little bit. By definition, so is it possible God's out there somewhere? Richard Dawkins, you say, and even if, and he's not going to do this. He's, he's had somebody do this to him, so he will not take the pencil anymore. But let's say he really thinks he controls that much, and I'm sure he doesn't. I don't think he's that unwise. Isn't it possible God could be out there somewhere? You're admitting you know nothing about that. you got to say yes. So it's really, it's hard to be an atheist if you actually are consistent based on all of that. So God is true, meaning he's real, and he's the source of all reality, but he has a different moral connection with evil than he has with good. But he's the ultimate cause of everything, of all reality, right? God is triune. What does that mean? That means, this is Dr. Ryder's definition, in the being of the one God, there are three persons. One what? Three who's, right? Um, the Father is God with all the attributes of God, but he's not the same person, mind, will, and emotion, as the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son's God, full deity, but he's not the Son of the Father nor the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is a he, a person, mind, will, and emotions, but he's not the Father nor the Son. Uh, I think every Christian should be able to defend briefly with a couple of passages the doctrine of the Trinity, that there's one God and three persons. You might say, well, where are we going to go? Well, I'd probably start in Matthew 28, but sometimes people say there's nothing in the Old Testament. Yeah, there is. In Isaiah 61, which is really cool, because Isaiah 61 is the verse Jesus reads in Luke 4, first time he's back home in Nazareth in the synagogue after he starts his ministry, and he says, this is talking about me, which is why they had a riot and tried to kill him that day. But this is Old Testament, Isaiah 61. It's K, kin kick out in the life of Christ A through Z. 
This is, hey, uh, this is what uh, Isaiah 700 BC, Tim says. He's talking about all three members of the Trinity. See if you can pick them out. This, and this is the Messiah, the Savior predicted in the Old Testament is talking in this context. The Spirit of the Lord God, that's called that the Holy Spirit, is upon me, that's called that Jesus, the second person. That's who he's talking about. Because the Lord, that's God the Father, has anointed me, God the Son, to bring the gospel to the poor. So the Spirit of the Lord there is the Holy Spirit. The me there, according to Jesus in Luke 4, is second person of the Trinity's Son. And the Lord there is God the Father. Now, if you go to the Old Testament and try to defend the Trinity, somebody's going to say, but how about that famous passage in Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Surely you can't believe in a Trinity in the Old Testament if that is the statement that they repeat every day before they pray. Yeah, you can. Because that word for one in the original language is used not for identity, but for composite unity. It's used in Genesis 2.24. The two shall become one flesh. The marital act doesn't make you one person with two heads. It's a, it, it cements a composite unity. It's not saying you're identically, I'm not Debbie McCoy. And Debbie McCoy is not Brad McCoy kind of thing. So I think those are really neat passages that nobody gives you because you have to think about it for five minutes, but you just spent five minutes and now you got it, so it's worth it. Uh, where I'd start would be, and I think, Roddy, I think this communicates well. When Jesus is telling us how to baptize, he says, baptize believers in the name, how many name? In the reality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So what are we doing here? We're talking about God. We're trying to define him as he's revealed himself in Scripture and specifically through the person of Jesus Christ. And we're saying he's true, meaning he's real and the source of all reality. He's triune, one God and three persons. Nobody would make it up because we don't even understand it at a basic level. He's transcendent. What does that mean? He's outside of time and space. He's a spirit, okay? He, you know, he's imminent. He makes himself in all of the time and space, but he's not limited by time and space. Uh, because he's a spirit, that's what he looks like. Is it, what is, what's on that slide? What's on that slide right there? Say it. Anybody say nothing? You're wrong. There's a lot of stuff on that slide. You can't see it. That's that slide with a black background. <laughs> Just because you can't see something with your eyes, your eyes only have a limited amount of wavelengths that they can even pick up. There's a lot of reality out there. Hope this is going to work for me just this once. Yeah, watch this. Now that's that's the other slide, but uh, I'm going to get out of here. Ah, shoot. You know what? I'm in a different uh, mode, but trust me. You know, faith is only as good as its object. That and that is the same slide. I just made that an all black background, and it goes away. All that, all the data you see there, all the bits are on that slide. You just can't see them. And when we say God is transcendent, we're saying He's spiritual. He's ultimately invisible, right? Let's move from the three T's to the three omni attributes. And I'm not thinking about the omni in Oklahoma City, but omni means all or complete. Okay, so God is um he, God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. That's what I got to remember. I got to start with my head. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. See that, Dennis? Scary in it. And he's omnipresent. Yeah, uh, God's omniscient. What does that mean? God knows absolutely everything. If anything's real and knowable, he knows it. He knows all the hypothetical thoughts you've got, like why is he why is Brad continuing to ramble on 
Why didn't you give us another cartoon? Or why didn't you just quit? Whatever you're thinking right now, whatever you're thinking about lunch of the Valentine's banquet, he knows all that stuff. He knows what you do do, what you don't do, what you could do, what you should do. If you know to do something good, you can do it, and you don't. That's called sin of omission, and that can trip you up too. But God is omniscient. He knows absolutely everything. So there's no secrets, no surprises. God doesn't ever say, oops, or I forgot that, or I wonder what. He knows every single thing about you, but he loves you enough anyway to let Christ die for you. So that tells you something. He's omnipotent. That means there's no finite limit to his power. So that means God can do anything, right? God can't lie. God can't die. God can't stop being God. God can't make a rock so big he himself can't lift it. God can't make a square circle. Omnipotence doesn't mean he can do anything. It means there's no finite limit on his power. There's a lot of things he won't do that's because it's cons- he can't sin. That's contrary to his character. And he's omnipresent. What does that mean? We said he was transcendent, which means he's outside of time and space, right? When we say he's uh, omnipresent, we mean he's everywhere present in time space all of the time. He doesn't move through sequences of time, nor is he spread out over the universe like a pat of butter on a piece of bread. He's everywhere, 100% everywhere throughout the space-time continuum all the time, from the point of creation until the point of recreation of Revelation 21. You can't process that completely, but you kind of semi-describe it. Those are the omni-attributes. So we're saying God is true, triune, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Now let's go to just, righteous, and sovereign. God is just. He's no respecter of persons. I put a slash there. Even though they're different, they have a composite thing I want to emphasize. He's righteous, inherently morally perfect, and he's sovereign. He's got a plan, did not consult you about the plan. It includes everything that happens. He's happy with the plan, and um, we can debate how exactly how that works, and Christians do, but that's what that is. But I put a just slash righteous because if you look at this list and you've been around the church very long, or any church, you're going to look at all these attributes and say, yeah, I guess those are kind of some of the things that the Bible says about uh, God. But where's holiness? Well, holiness is a composite of his justice and his righteousness. The word holy in the Old Testament, kadosh, or the New Testament, hagiash, just means completely, totally distinct from something. The context tells you what. And typically we think about God's holiness as being totally distinct from any moral impurity or any uh, lack of justice kind of thing. Uh, it actually is bigger than that. But holiness really in my categories, is a composite of his justice justice and his righteousness. Right? And God is love. He's immutable. He's veracity. He's eternal. Uh, God is love in that he seeks His hi- the highest good of his creatures, consistent with his character and his purposes. Uh, you, you know, we talk about three basic words in the New Testament for love. Uh, we've got agape, phileo, and arao. Arao is erotic or physical or romantic or sexual love. Uh, phileo, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it's fondness, it's emotional fondness. Agape is not primarily, and this is the core uh, of the love of God, is not primarily an emotion, it's primarily a volition. It's choosing to seek other people's highest good. We're supposed to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what else? Love other people like ourselves. Now, there are a lot of people it's hard to feel fond for, uh, and you're only going to supposed to have eroticism with your mate. You, before the life-giving act is enjoyed, you make a life-giving commitment, right? But as far as agape, 
That's just a, a, it's just a choice. It's not a feeling. You can seek other people's highest good. Uh, I tell you this, I really enjoyed my 13, 15 years now plus at teaching at Cameron University, but it gets harder every semester. I mean, the, the kids have different expectations about what college is about. Every semester you can see us getting, getting worse and worse and worse. And I really feel, I, I pray every day before I go in the classroom, Lord, help me do no harm spiritually for these people. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure how much good I can do for them. But, um, yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of uh, people you interact with in those kind of environments that are hard to love. You know, they don't turn their stuff in time. They have an attitude. They act like you're doing a favor showing up. It's almost as bad as church in some cases. But, uh, no, I'm, uh, but uh, they're paying for it. Or mommy's paying for it. Or Uncle Sam's paying for it. And act like you're, they're doing you a favor when they show up for an 8 o'clock class. I would say, hey, you signed up for this or somebody did. You know, I, I'm here at 7.15. You know, you show it at 8.05. I don't feel sorry for you. You think taking a college class is tough, Michelle? Try teaching one. <laughs> Just the paperwork will kill you. I mean, that's about right. And they add the paperwork all the time. So, yeah, God is love, but it's not this romantic, he's too nice to ever send anybody to hell. He's never going to condemn anybody. In fact, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, he just threw the rule book out. Now, Christ died for us. So he makes sure the payment is made for you, but a lot of people don't want it, right? God's immutable, which means his character doesn't change. He does, God has zero potential. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? Amber, that sounds weird. God has zero potential. Just like it sounds weird to say there's a lot of things God can't do. That sounds weird too, doesn't it? But it's true. Can God lie? Can God die? Can God make a rock bigger than he is? No, no he can't do it. There's a lot of things he can't do. Um, and when you say things like, God has zero potential? You kidding me? Now, Riley, you got a lot of potential, okay? And listen, there's only one race, the human race. Get moving. You're going to finish in the last place. I'm just telling you. But uh, <laughs> now, Riley is, is such a, you know, he'll always have an indelible part in TBF. He, he's going to get rich and famous in Edmond. But it's great to see him. And he was such a ma- major part of the youth group and the overall church for years. And he became a great musician, and you were kind of that uh, one of the, I think, some of the members of that first worship band that James organized, kind of from scratch, teaching you guys how to play the the music, the uh, the instruments and stuff. You still playing guitar? Yeah, don't don't lose that, man. Uh, it's a great talent to have. So God is love. He seeks His creatures' highest good, consistent with His character and His purposes. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Okay. Uh, Homer and I were talking about. Some of the older translations have the word shall in certain places, like maybe God will, maybe he won't. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. You know, the, 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 it, that sounds like there's possibility he might change his mind, but it doesn't mean that. I, I had a, a lady in, in my church in Shreveport who had trouble with assurance of salvation because we kind of figured it out. Her father could be either real nice, real nice, real nice, or real mean, like almost demon-possessed, and beat on him and do all kinds of terrible things to him. And then he apologized. And this, you this, you this, you do see this cycle sometimes in abusers, you know, that they're nice, 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 and then they hammer you, and then they apologize after a few days, a few weeks, and give me another chance, and they're nice, 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 and then they hammer you again. And this gal, I guess, had been so traumatized by that kind of input, the Holy Spirit can overcome that, but it's not easy. And it doesn't excuse staying stuck where you are, but it explains why you might tend to be stuck. And I remember she was the, the wife of the 
Air Force pilot who ended up going down to seminary and who came at, toward the end of our time, uh, period there. But yeah, she, she just kept thinking, well, yeah, I know it says that Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have the everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And, she, and I said, you know, you're a believer, right? And when I walked through that, she trusted Christ and totally, and I said, this is it, just put your name in the blank. She said, well, what if he changes his mind? I said, he's not going to change his mind. You know, well, you know, my dad changed his mind. You changed your mind. I, yeah, well, we change our minds all the time, but God's immutable. His character doesn't change. His plans and purposes don't change. His veracity, which means everything God affirms is reliable in Scripture and in science. Okay, in Ecclesiastes and in psychology. If you're seeing a Scripture uh, and science not lining up, you have misunderstood one of those data sets or the other, or you're not correlating it correctly every time. Uh, Isaac Newton, the father of modern science, was a born-again believer who spent all this time measuring how fast things fell, and they fall at 9.8 meters per second, by the way. He figured that out every time. Sheets of paper. If I, if I, if I drop this and this, they're gonna fall exactly the same rate, aren't they? Tell me what you really think. I'm not gonna do it because I wanna break my mouse. I don't wanna break my phone. If I drop these, will these drop at the same rate? They're gonna drop at the same rate, but they're gonna, but there's a problem though. Something interferes with this thing falling at 9.8 meters per second. Wind was air resistance. If you suck all the air out of this room, which would be hard to do, but if you put this in a bell jar with a little mechanical arm, <laughs> my old baseball instincts came back. I kind of coming back at me. Great. Um, if, if I put this in a bell jar with, and suck the air out and had a mechanical arm and push the button and drop, it would fall just as fast as a rock. How did Isaac Newton figure that out? Because he believed that God had created a logical, rational universe so he could spend 30 years studying stuff like that and try to describe it. And he said, I'm describing God's thoughts after him there. The whole idea of a rational universe is not from the Big Bang, everything out of nothing. It's from a creator God that is rational and uh, is voracious. He he's, has veracity. He's not going to lie to us. Ancient Greek uh, thinkers were philosophical thinkers. I've got a weird thing on my computer there. You can't see it. Uh, you know, what is it? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, these are great philosophical thinkers, but they weren't great empirical scientific thinkers because the average Greek would pick up a rock that had a fish fossil in it, and they're, they're gods of Mount Olympus. They lie, cheat, steal, fornicate, get drunk. All their guys do all this stuff. So the average Greek who's scientifically disposed would pick up that fish fossil, and what are we going to do? We're going to, this is a fish fossil. This, this is, this represents a real animal at some point under sedimentary rock, under a flood, you know, maybe that's what it was. Um, the average Greek in 500 BC would say, ah, that looks like a fish in a rock, but I know those gods up there in Mount Olympus are lying to me. I know those are fish in rocks. Just throw that away. You know, they don't care. They don't care about that. But uh, the whole premise that God is reasonable, rational, and he tells the truth in scripture and science is the basic basis of modern science. And then God's eternal uh, from everlasting to everlasting. He's outside of time. He transcends time, but there's, there's never a time he wasn't there. You say, well, I can't wrap my mind around that. You've only got four options. Either the universe is eternal, which physics tells us that, that's not possible. The universe is imaginary. We've already covered that. Get all your imaginary money out before you leave. If you want to hold that view, it's a free country. But I want that imaginary money. And I also want the, all the numbers on your cards, including that three digit on the back of that imaginary card. 
So it's not imaginary, it's not eternal. It either popped into existence out of nothing and by nothing for no reason. That's the source of everything. And 14 billion years later, you've got this. Or you've got a transcendent creator God outside of time who did it. And we read, in the beginning was the Word, a title for Jesus, and the Word was with God the Father, and the Word was full deity himself, and everything came into being through him. That's the most scientific thing you can say based on present physics. Okay? Now, how are you going to remember the attributes? Uh, I'm assuming you might want to. That's, an, that's faith, based only as good as his object. If you want to carry this around in your head, uh, you remember a, a Swedish word, Turish live, but most people like two juniors live. Although Ron says tattoos, that's, that's, that's in wrong order. Junior's tattoos not going to work. So, if you remember the, the, remember the, the, the mnemonic two, I know that's not two, but it's t t t I'm going to say, pronounce that two. That's like if you stutter, you know, Mel Tillis. Okay? That's t t t two. Juniors live. Now how does that line up with all that other stuff, Brad? Thank you for asking. I got a slide on that. Um, the three T's are God is true. What does that mean? He's real, right? And he's the source of all reality. He's triune, one God and three persons. Where are you going to go to support that biblically? Anywhere? Go to Matthew 28. Go to Isaiah 61, right? Uh, those will work. I'll show you another one in a minute. Uh, God's transcendent. What does that mean? Outside of time and space. If anything now exists, something or some. One must be eternal, outside of time and space, or otherwise everything came out of nothing. That's what we're talking about there. God's omniscient, knows absolutely everything. God's omnipotent, no finite limit to his, he's infinitely powerful. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present in time and space, including in your bedroom right now, including right here right now. Everywhere. He's never going to be someplace where he won't be. He's even in Nineveh. That was a mind blower for Jonah. Okay, how... The, the Jewish prophet didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites. They were all evil, cruel Assyrians. Plus, God wasn't there. God was just in that little ranch tract he, that Abraham got, right? It's not the way it works. Uh, JRS, that's two. JRS is just. Uh, no respect to a person's righteous, inherently morally perfect, and sovereign. He has a plan. And once you get that, it, it, it simplifies your life so much. I mean, Calvinists do it one way, Arminians... Emeraldians in the middle do something else with the details. But God has a purpose. He has a plan. All things work together for good in the plan. He's not responsible for the evil. That's our fault. He is responsible for all the good, including how it all works out in the end. And, uh, I, you know, I've always told James, you know, sometimes it gets frustrating around here. And I always say, hey, God loves us more than we do. God cares more than we do. God's got a plan even if we can't see it. You just got to sometimes fly on instruments, you know. Then live. Wouldn't it be great if it's love? Maybe I should change that to an O. Too late. Let your next pastor do that. Uh, God's love. He seeks uh, our highest good consistent with his character and his purposes. He's immutable. How much potential does God have? If he has potential, it means he hasn't been able to be or do something he already isn't. He already is. I said that right. Veracity. You can trust him both in science and scripture. He's from everlasting to everlasting. I'm going to suggest God exists, God reveals, and he ultimately superlatively reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the second person of the ontological trinity, took on humanity without ceasing to be deity. That's what we call Christmas. you got the virgin conception, nine months later virgin birth, and you've got one person with how many natures? The only one who can bridge the gap between God and man is the God-man. 
And as you know, he lived a perfect, righteous life. He died as our substitute on the cross to pay for Dustin Wiley's complete sin debt and Sue Smith Raska's total sin debt. Um, and he rose again to validate the saving power of that. And then he ascended to heaven. We talked about that last week, right? I like this uh, graphic because I think you should know. And this, watch, you can learn how to say, you want to say Jesus in Hebrew? Yeshua. Now, a lot of times when we're singing that, if Jesus is repeated a lot in the hymn, I just put Yeshua in there. For some reason, it just feels like that's the way Peter, James, and John refer to him. These are all labels, but uh, Yeshua means God's Savior. That's his name. His name is God's Savior. Christ is not his last name. Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, Virgin Conception, nine months later, Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It's one of his most important titles. It goes back to the Old Testament. means Savior. The Old Testament said a lamb's coming, and then let it be a lion. He's the lamb. He's going to be the lion. And then that word for Lord, all caps, as Eric will tell you, uh, it goes back to the most important personal salvation name for God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, translated in English, all caps, L-O-R-D. So when you think about it, I mean, Lord, look at this. This is what God wants you to know about Jesus, that he's the God-man Savior. That's what his name means. His title here, Lord, means he's God. His title here means he's the Savior. You know, here's one of my premises. There's some things in the Bible hard to understand, okay? But the main things are plain things, and they get repeated a lot, okay? You can read the Bible and miss that and deny it, but it's your own fault, okay? It's pretty obvious the Bible is teaching Jesus is the incarnation of God. He's the exclusive issue, an exclusive issue of eternal life. Trust no one else but him for your salvation, and you'll be good, you know? What did he do? He was our sin offering on the cross, rose again from the dead, and as, uh, you know, in Acts 16.30, Riley, the only place anybody ever asked, what must I do to be saved? What was the answer the Apostle Paul gave? Do you remember? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Uh, I'll give you the short version. I asked a Jehovah's Witness once at my doorstep, and I'm not trying to act like I'm a cool guy that always answers all the questions because sometimes I can't answer all the questions they throw at me. But a guy came to my house, and uh, he wants to talk about whatever's in their magazine that week. And I just I just thought, okay, I want to I went over a couple of clear verses like John three sixteen, and then I said, Okay, just stop. What must I do to be saved? And as soon as I said that I thought, okay, that's the, exactly the King James Version of Acts sixteen thirty. I bet they've been programmed with a ready response. And he paused for a second, but he said, You what, what must I do to be saved? He said, You've got to obey the gospel. Now that and that actually sounds like it might be right, depending on what he means by that. And fortunately, I ended up. My seminary training had taught me when you hear somebody you know doesn't mean what you think that sounds like they mean. You ask them, "What do you mean by that?" And I said, "What do you mean by that?" And he said, "Now watch." I said, "What must I do to be saved as Jehovah's Witness?" He supposedly he's, he's knocking on my door to tell me, and I, he said, "You've got to obey the gospel." Okay. And I said, what does that mean? He said, you've got to obey all, you've got to obey all the laws and the commandments of the Bible. Is that good news? No. That's really bad news because you can't do that. And, it, and, and I, I've never heard anybody say that. And I, I just was kind of taken aback. I said, you can't do that. And I said, I certainly can't do that. Right? But the other person would have said, hey, they're saying the same thing we are. Uh, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us, right? But to the one who does not work, but believes on Christ who justifies the ungodly, what did Christ do to justify the ungodly? Pay our sin debt and rise again. But to the one who does not work, but him who believes in Christ, 
who saves the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So salvation is not something we achieve, it's something we receive. Salvation is of the Lord. And I, I think when you think about God, start with who Jesus Christ is. I think he is the superlative expression of God that is uh, also has the advantage of being very, very famous. He's famous worldwide, okay? Now let me finish this way. This isn't just uh, 40 minutes of good information. It really was pretty good information today, by the way. Uh, but Christianity is not a spectator sport. If you've trusted Jesus alone for salvation, you need to realize it's not about listening to James talk on Wednesday nights or listening to Brad talk on Sunday mornings, and that's what Christianity is. It's something you live on Monday mornings and Thursday afternoons and even on prom night, right? It's not a spectator sport. We're all supposed to be scoring team points for the team. And, you know, I keep bumping into people who think like this, mainly at Cameron. Churches are not businesses with customers. They are spiritual families with contributors, okay? One of the first things I asked Riley, I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, where are you going to church? And he told me, and he's work, he's got a work schedule and stuff like that. But the TPFers that move out of town tend to do well spiritually if they plug into a good church and make it better. And it may be a lot bigger than this one or fancier or have a better preacher or whatever, and that's fine, you know. But some people go and they can't find exactly what we got here, and then they stop going. And that's the ultimate nightmare scenario for me. Find the best one you can find and make it better. Don't go as a customer. Don't go as a consumer. Go as a contributor, right? So we started with the theological if statement, but let me close with what I call the practical if statement. You know, the four, this is all Richard Dawkins has. This is all Nietzsche had. This is all Freud has. This is all Oprah's got. This is all Billy Graham had. This is all Franklin Graham has. It's imaginary, eternal, God created something outside of time and space, and Jesus reveals it's him. Or it came out as out of nothing by nothing. It was one big miracle. We can try to explain the rest is what they want us to do. I'm not giving them that miracle, okay? But here's the practical if statement. And you think about this, this really makes sense. If God exists, I mean the God of the Bible, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If God exists, then ultimately he's the only thing that really matters because the death rate's 100%, right? And you can be a president of a bank or president of a country or a pastor of a church, and it's it's all going away, man. Cadillacs end up in junkyards, every single one. Every single Cadillac will eventually end up in a junkyard. Unless it's stolen and burned by, you know, anarchists or something like that. But it doesn't last forever. If God exists, then ultimately he's the only thing that matters in and through your faith in Jesus Christ. If God does not exist, then ultimately nothing really matters. We've got a generation of kids addicted to playing video games. If you don't get up here in the pulpit and make it into a video game format, they won't come. They'll whine. They'll complain. Mommy doesn't want to drag them to church because they don't like it. Uh, and you're told in school that you're just basically well-organized carbon atoms without a soul. And we wonder why they act like animals and let them grow up with, without the parents that produced them and love each other. You know, there are other things happen. That's not necessarily their fault at all. But yeah, that's kind of where we are. And no, no politician is going to fix that. No amount of government spending is going to fix that. Now we ought to shine as much light as possible. You know, I get that. We don't just throw up our hands. Do as much good as you can. And uh, you look at some of these kids, they got, they're clueless, but it's right, not really their fault. But if God exists, ultimately he's the only thing that matters. If he doesn't exist, nothing really matters. And that's kind of the way, look at our, look at our culture. That's kind of the way it looks like most people think at a practical level. Will they actually go to church on Easter or not? But watch this. I will close with this. This is a nice statement with all three members of the Trinity talking about salvation. 
If you've never trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you can do it right where you sit. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I break my own standards at my worst, much less yours, and I can't fix it. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, which is eternal separation from God in a place of punishment. So that's the bad news. The good news is that uh, he who knew no sin, Jesus, was made to be a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He paid your way into heaven. And you can receive it by simple faith in him alone. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Jesus said, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. What's that worth to you? That's a lot. And I love Romans 4, 5, but to the one who does not work, it's not about something you do religiously or trying to be nice. To the one who does not work, but who believes in him, Christ, who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. But for the rest of us, let's uh, pray God will broaden our conception of who he is so we can have a more profound response to him as Christians. But I'll, I'll finish with this one. Titus 3, 4 through 7. It's one sentence in the original. But when the kindness of God our Savior, and that's a reference to God the Father here as the architect of the plan of salvation, that his love for mankind appeared. God so loved the world. That's God the Father loved the world. He gave his son. That's Jesus, John 3, 16. He saved us. Did you, do you guys diagram sentences anymore in high school and college? He saved us. Look at that clause. You got a subject, a verb, and a direct object. The subject produces the action of the verb. Who's the subject of he, he saved us? Be he, right? God is the subject. He's the one who produces the action of the verb. Uh, the object, he saved us. The direct object receives, is the receiver of the action of the verb. Salvation is of the Lord. He saved us, not we save ourselves. <clears throat> not on the basis of things, deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, when he regenerates you in the moment of saving faith. He's the activating agent of salvation, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ. What he ever do? Everything, right? Perfect righteous life, sacrificial death, literal bodily supernatural resurrection, the active agent, that being justified by his grace, unmerited favor, let's just say Romans, not Roman, we would be made heirs of eternal life. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I pray you would uh, expand our categories and our conception of just how great you are in your goodness and your grace. We are very finite. We cannot have an infinite understanding of you in any way and I don't think we'll have that forever we'll never be bored in heaven because we're going to always be learning more and more of your perfections and your greatness and your grace but expand our capacity to more accurately think about and prioritize you and your purposes for our lives we pray for anyone here who's not by your grace drawing them to yourself trusted Jesus Christ alone let this be the day of salvation for them as they rest in him alone and receive him uh, for those of us who are believers, uh, help us to not just think more astutely, but to commit to more profoundly living out the Lordship of Christ in our lives, whether we're in medical school or high school or senior citizen or anything in between. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.